Well, good morning again, everybody. You know, what's interesting is everybody has like little hobbies, like when you're bored and like you want to like keep your brain stimulated and there's like Sudoku or there's like the, the crossword puzzles. Well, for me, the thing that keeps my brain always running is uh, being a parent of a 16-year-old daughter. Like that is my new favorite hobby. It is all-consuming, it's incredible, um, it's mesmerizing, heartbreaking, right? It's all the things. And don't worry, I already owed her 20 bucks from blowing her up last Sunday service. I don't even feel bad about that. Um, But it is like, she is just incredible. She is beautiful and strong and strong-willed. She is fierce. Um, As you can tell, we're we're dealing with some stuff, right? Just incredible. I love her. It's all I think about. It's seriously all I think about. When my son went off to college, I was like, all right, Mackenzie, it's you and me. Like, we go to Taco Bell. Like, she's like, I want to go to Taco Bell. Done. Like, whatever she wants to do, I'm happy to spend time with her. I love her. I love her. It is, she is the joy of my life, even with all the chaos. Like, as she is the joy. And I cannot believe that she's 16. I can't believe that she's starting to look for college. I can't believe, like, it's almost over, right? I'm like, it's a lot. And what's wild is um, this last January, I was in Chicago um, at a pastor's conference, and I was visiting with a good friend of mine named Eric, and we've been friends for, gosh, 20 years, a really long time. And he has a 16-year-old daughter, and we ended up, um, you know, just sitting around after one of the sessions and catching up, and I've known his daughter since she was five, and she's known my daughter her whole life. And we just started sharing about, you know, the joys and terrors of raising a 16-year-old daughter, right? And the boys and the grades and the college and the future and the social media, like all the things. And we were just commiserating and laughing and telling stories. And it was just like, it was all consuming because we love our daughters. We love them. But what's interesting is that, but our daughters are a little bit different in one way. One, my daughter, um, she's my daughter. She's my biological daughter. Made her the good old-fashioned way, Right? And my buddy, um, Eric, his daughter is Nasifu, and she was adopted from a South African orphanage uh, when she was four. And this is their picture. This is a dated picture because this was, what, like 12 years ago, right, already, if you can believe that. And, uh, and what I love is they've, they adopted this, this young girl, and, uh, and she is their daughter. And then when we're talking, there was no, like, hedging, like, well, you know, I mean, she's adopted, so you know, blah, blah, blah. Or, well, you know, she's adopted, so blah, blah, blah. It was like... He was talking about his daughter, I was talking about my daughter, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of their character development, all of like freaking out about paying for college and who their lives are going to be, right? They, we were in the exact same frame. There was no like, you know, because she's adopted. No. And Nostipo is his daughter just as much as Mackenzie is my daughter, right? And what's so wild is, and I, and I love this story because Eric and Jessica, Jessica, sorry, for a whole variety of reasons, right? However, God does the weirdest things that he does. Um, they were like, we're going to adopt a child. And they, had, they had some connections to this orphanage in South Africa. And, uh, and they met this girl, Nasifo, and she said, that's her. That's her. Like, oh my goodness, we just met our daughter. They could not believe their minds were blown. They're telling all their friends, like, we met our daughter. This is so great. We're like, oh my goodness, you're going to have a daughter. We're so, so full of joy. And, uh, and as they're telling us, they're like, all right, so now what we got to do is do the paperwork and raise the money which is like a year of paperwork and like $45,000. And when you're like a youth pastor, you know, 12 years ago, that's a, that's a big leap. But we're like, oh, great. 
let's do it. And we've been praying and they raised money and they earned money and saved and they did all the things. And a year and a half later, they did all the things and they grabbed her and she is their daughter and she is an Anderson. It is funny that they took her from the South African orphanage where all she had was a little blanket and her only skill was basically beaten up by the girls so she could have more porridge to being plopped in the middle of Minnesota in winter. And now she's, uh, now she's all about it, plays basketball and loves the snow and she crushes, right? It's super funny. But what I think is so incredible is that really, I mean, is the gospel story that we were these orphans by our own sin, by the sin of the world, by our own brokenness, by the brokenness of the world. Somehow we ended up being orphans in God who was rich in mercy Right? He predestined us. He looked, because Nasifo had no idea who Eric and Jessa were, but they knew who she was. And God, in the same way, while we were orphans, looks and goes, oh, Tyler, right? I see you. I'm coming after you. You're my guy. Anthony, I see you. I'm coming after you. Ruth, I see you. I'm come. Carol, for sure, I see you. Right? He predestined us. All right, that's who I'm coming after. I see you. I'm coming after you. I'm going to do whatever it takes, whatever it costs and then to be adopted into the family and to be a full daughter, a full son for all of eternity. Isn't that beautiful? That is the richness of the gospel. That's what we've been talking about all Lent. That's what this passage in Ephesians just hits over and over and over again, that we were orphans adopted by God to sonship, right? Through Jesus Christ, according to his pleasure and will. All right, so that's where we're going to look at this passage in Ephesians. We're just going to unpack it. Some of you had incredible uh, questions. Some of them are so good that I'm like, ah, I don't want to bore you with what happens on the flip side of predestination. That's for another time, right? Ben will take care of that in a couple of weeks. But we're going to talk through this passage. I think what God has to say for us this morning. And if I don't hit it quite right, or you want to really get after some theological things, you can talk to Jeff uh, when he gets back from vacation. Okay. <laughs> so here we are, Ephesians chapter one. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. It's beautiful. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. How many times can he say loves, pleasure, loves, pleasure? And for my friend Eric and Jessa, right? They have nothing but love and pleasure. If you've had a child, you see your child, you love and pleasure, I think that way about my nieces, right? Even before I was a kid, a parent, like, I just love and pleasure. You see these precious little kids, right? This is God's posture towards us. So we're going to unpack these different words. So let's begin with, he predestined us. And what's interesting, right, like I said, in adoption, the way that adoption works is the parents who choose. It's the parents who do the, all the work. The parents do every part of the process. It doesn't matter who the kid is. It doesn't matter how good the kid is. It doesn't matter what special skills the kid has. It is nothing about the kid. It is the parent, by their will, by their pleasure, by their decision, they go, Carol, you're mine. That's it. So, what did, for, so he predestined us for adoption. So we think of what does it mean to be for adoption. Um, this is how I think of adoption. And so you have to bear with me. So I'm going to share with you a little biblical story. And it's going to be a weird winding road, but you can hang with me for a couple minutes. Like, what are you going to do? Get up and walk out? Maybe. <laughs> but just hang, hang with me for a couple minutes, okay? So in the ancient world, and this is really, I mean, all the way to the modern world, there were kings that ruled. And there would be dynasties that ruled. And the way it worked is I was the king. I would rule. I would have a son. That son would then rule after me. That son would rule after me. And every now and then, right, there would be battles and wars um, or intrigue and espionage or whatever. And the king would die or be killed or be murdered. And there would be a new king 
that would take over. And what's interesting is they, they weren't all kind-hearted and civilized. Like, hey, I'm the new king, so all you other sons and grandsons, like, you just go move away and start a new business. No, those guys were a threat. They were a threat to the new kingdom, to the new dynasty. And so and what they would do is they would track down all of the family members and just murder them. Right? It's how the world works. It's how the ancient world for sure worked because it put the new dynasty at risk. And that's how kings for all of human history uh, rose and fell. Well, the first king of Israel, King Saul, in the book of uh, 2 Samuel, he's at the height of his empire, and he has a son, Jonathan, and they're fighting against the Philistines, right? So you have the, Isra- you have the king of Israel um, and the Israelites fighting the Philistines, and they're having this big battle. And in this one battle, um, the Philistines come and they actually kill Saul. And not only does Saul die, but his son, Jonathan, dies as well. And their dynasty is over. And the Philistines, it looks like, are they going to win? Did they win? Um, are they going to crush the Israel as the new dynasty can take over? Nobody knows. But everybody knows that there's this tiny little window that if you're a descendant of Saul, you better get out of Dodge. Well, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, um, was a little kid at the time. And his nurse or his you know, babysitter or his nanny, right, at the time was like, oh, my goodness. She got the news. Your dad died. Your grandpa died. There. The, the guns are coming after you. Let's get out of here. And she picks up Mephibosheth and she runs to get out of Dodge. And she actually trips and falls. And Mephibosheth falls and breaks his ankles and is lame. But she still picks him up. They, take, they go off to this distant land and they, they, they kind of hide out in this distant land. And so he's raised, right? So he was this little kid and now he's an adult and he's an adult who is lame. He's an adult who is part of a dynasty that if anyone finds out who he is, his life is threatened, is in danger. And, um, and this is the, the world in which he's growing up with. Well, while that's all happening to Mephibosheth, excuse me, um, right? King David rises to power, comes on the scene, takes over the Philistines, David and Goliath, right? That whole story, that all happens. And uh, David becomes, right? He becomes the king. And David and Jonathan were best friends. I mean, they loved each other. It's like the picture of the best friendship in the whole Bible. And David said, is there anybody out there who's a descendant of Jonathan? Because I want to show kindness to him. He's only, all their descendants only experience death and destruction. I want, to ex- I want him to experience kindness. And so he sends the words out. And sure enough, he finds Mephibosheth. And he invites Mephibosheth to his home. Now imagine if you're Mephibosheth, you're like, well, I'm not going there. Right? You're going to go to the new king's home? This is a death sentence. But you kind of have to, because when the king finds you, you have to come, right? And so he goes to the king's home. And this is what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7. It says this, David says, don't be afraid, because he would be. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of my father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. This guy who was destined for death, David showed grace and mercy and kindness and invited him to come back. He restored his old lands and invites him to sit at the king's table with him for the rest of his life. Isn't that a beautiful picture? This enemy of David is shown mercy and grace and goes and sits at his table. And I love this picture because when I think of adoption, I think that's what it's like. We're these enemies of God. God showed grace and mercy and invites us to sit at his table forever. Right? Communion is kind of a picture of that. It's a beautiful picture. But what I think is so fascinating is that it's actually not the picture. That's not what God is even intending. That is a beautiful grace, but that is only half the picture because the idea of being adopted, it's not just being adoption for adoption, it's to sonship. 
right? Being adopted means you go, you get to sit around the table, you get to eat from the king's table forever. But that's not what God wants. God wants us to be adopted to sonship, not just to be, eat food, but to be part of the family, to be part of the family business, to be a co-heir, to, to be a caretaker of the family business, to carry the weight and mantle of the name of the father. So to be adopted for adoption to sonship. And this is what's hard, right? I've actually never really thought about this because in my heart, I want to be a nice, kind-hearted, egalitarian feminist from Marin. I want to be. I'm trying always, right? And I'm always recognizing that we are daughters and sons recognized for adoption. And even the passages of Scripture and the, 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 the translations of Scripture, I want to make sure it says daughters and sons, daughters and sons, daughters, because it matters, but I thought, what a fun study. Two sonship actually does matter in the world. My mom, um, she grew up in a ranch uh, outside of Calexico, California, right across the border from Mexicali. And uh, her, her whole family, they were French dairy farmers. And these guys had hands that were just gigantic, right? My uncle had hands that were gigantic. They all had mustaches and were just incredible, just Oh, incredible men. There's a picture of my grandpa shaving with an ax. Like, he's just a, like, <laughs> these are those guys, you know? They're awesome. And, um, and because, uh, for whatever reason, when my grandpa was, gosh, maybe 50? I mean, I was, I mean, I was a baby, baby uh, when, he, when he died. But he passed away suddenly of a brutal heart attack, right? Because they just smoked and drank and ate, you know, cholesterol until the very end, right? Anyway, so he dies. And because he died, right, he splits his land. He takes half of, half of the ranch and he gives it to his wife, and he takes the other half and gives it to his sons. Now, the problem is he had six kids, two sons, four daughters. My mom wanted the daughters, right? So, of course, my skew is a little slanted in this whole thing, right? But, right, but that's what you do. You're, the, the sons are the ones who are going to work the land. The sons are the ones who are going to carry on the tradition. The sons are going to are gonna do the labor, are going to pay the taxes, are going to do all the hard work. And yet there's a financial benefit, but there is a ton of work to keep this ranch going for the next generation. Well, 20 years later, or maybe 30 years later, uh, somewhere in there, my, my grandma passes away as well. And when she passes away, she then divides the land her half to everybody. But my uncle's already got their portion, right? And to this day, like 30 years later, my mom and her sisters and their brothers, there's this like, there's this angst, pissiness among them, right? Because it was unfair. It was the old school way, right? In this new school world, these, these daughters are like, we just got jacked. And they did. And especially because I'm a descendant of the daughter. I'm like, yeah, we got jacked. <laughs> but it is, but, but sonship is a thing. It is a thing that that is how the world worked, that we live in such an individualized way that we don't even realize that it wasn't until like the, basically the modern era that there was no such thing as the individual. It was the family unit that mattered. The family unit that mattered, and it wasn't to, for wealth and the generational wealth, it was for existence, for sustenance, for sustenance, excuse me, right? That the family was supposed to go on generation after generation, and it was the son who was going to be the caretaker of the family name, who was going to do the family business, who was going to be responsible for passing on the family legacy. That was the son's job. And what's incredible is that we were adopted, not just to be sitting around the table like Mephibosheth, but we were adopted to sonship. Right? And what's wild is, like my, my friend Eric and Jessa, they adopted Nasifu because they felt compassion for this poor kid 
who's going to grow up in an orphanage and grow up with no parents. They said, we, we love her. We have compassion for this kid. We want this kid to be in our family. But in the ancient world, that's not how adoption worked. Adoption had nothing to do with kindness and compassion. Adoption had to do with, I don't have an heir. I have all of this land. I have all this legacy. What am I going to do? And they would adopt usually a grown man into their family and say, you now are going to be the caretaker of this family, of this family business. And that is what God has called us to do, not just sit around the table, but to now be the legacy caretakers of his brand, of his character, of his mission. And what I love is, uh, is Paul is actually the original feminist. So even though he said, yes, you were adopted to sonship, he makes it very clear throughout the entire book of Ephesians, throughout the entire book of Galatians, that all of us, women and men, are adopted into the family of God into the title, because sonship is a title, into this title and position of sonship, right? In Galatians, he says, right, there's no Greek, there's no barbarian, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no male, there's no female. We are one in Christ. He, he says all those distinctions that divide us, those are gone. We are one in Christ. So whether you are a woman or you are a man, you are adopted to the title of son. You are adopted to be the person who's going to carry on the legacy of God. First Peter says it like this. Um, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8 says it like this. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Again, right? And by him we cry, Abba, Father. What I love is like this idea that, that, our, that God wants to be our heavenly Father and is inviting us to say, to call him by the most intimate name. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I have a weird relationship with my dad. I would never call him daddy. That whole thing, I cannot get my head around it. And it is weird, though, that the creator of the universe, no matter what sort of dysfunctional family we came from, whether our parents were the worst expression of parental love or the best expression of parental love, that God wants to redeem that picture and says, no, let me show you what the true picture of parental love looks like. And on one hand, it looks so intimate, like a little kid sitting upon your knee, experiencing just the love and gaze of a father. That's the spirit that we've been given. So not only do we get to cry out, Abba, Father, and he goes on to say this, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. But then if we're God's children, then we are his heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's a wild thing, because I think a lot of times we think, oh, I got to do Christian things. I got to do the things that Jesus calls me to do. I better do this. I better do that because I don't want God to get mad at me, or I want God to like me, or I'm out of duty, or whatever. And what's funny is that's what, that's what punk kids do. Punk kids who work for their family business are like, oh, fine, I'll work. I'll come on Saturday. I'll do the family business. I'll do the thing. But what's interesting is that they grow and as they mature, at one point they realize this family business is going to be my family business. This legacy and this business, this farm, this whatever it is, this is going to be my thing. So whatever work that I'm doing is actually going to be mine one day. And now I'm not just a laborer. I'm a co-heir. I'm a partner in this business. And God, that's what his invitation to us is that we would be people who would be co-heirs with Christ. The family business is the expansion of the kingdom of God. That's why we work for justice and mercy, compassion and kindness. We're people who work at doing these things towards the kingdom of God so it gets established on earth as it is in heaven. But we do that not out of duty, but we do that because that's our kingdom. I mean, it's God's kingdom that we are co-heirs with. We own that business. 
and God's inviting us to own it. What a different understanding to be just a day laborer, to be an hourly employee as opposed to being an owner of the family business. All right, so we're adopted for, wait, we're predestined for adoption to sonship, and here's the deal, through Jesus. And this is kind of a mystery, and especially if you're new to Christianity and you're new to religion, and we live in a total secular era, and so none of this makes sense. And so I understand that the starting point for many people is that this is offensive and it makes no sense. Because in the church, we talk a lot about, right, that Jesus, he lived, he died on the cross, he rose again, right, and he will come back one day. But that center part of dying on the cross there was for a function. His death on the cross pays the penalty for our sin, right? My, my friend Eric and Jessa, when they wanted to adopt Nasifo, it costed $40,000, $45,000, whatever it was. There's no way this five-year-old girl's like, whoa, 40,000 bucks, that's a lot. Thank you. She's five. She had no idea from South Africa. It made no sense to her, right? As she's 11, they weren't like, hey, Thanks for doing these things, uh, but you better do you clean your room because you know we spent $45,000 on you. <laughs> right, they don't do that. Right? She's getting ready to go to college. You, know, you better get good grades. We spent $45,000 on you. That's not how it works. A parent, they spend what it costs. And as Nasifa gets older and older, she's going to come to realize, oh my gosh, my parents spent $45,000 with inflation, $75,000 for me to be here. And think of the gratitude and affection and the way her mind's going to be blown when she comes to understand that. In the same way, in our movement towards Christ, for whatever reason God set it up, he set it up that Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross, is the payment that covers all of our sin, all of our rebellion. It's the ransom that somehow allows us to go from enemy to friend, from orphan to son. And the people who have been steeped in religion forever, who've gone deep in theology, they, are, like, they, they get it. And, even, and the more you get it, the more your heart is blown away at what that sacrifice means. And those who are on the front end, God's not mad. God's not hanging over your head. He's like, hey, you're a kid. You're figuring it out. But that's how it works. Through Christ, there is a true cost. That true cost was paid by Jesus. And because of that, as we grow and mature towards Christ, gosh, for those of us who are maturing in Christ, we just want to be so full of gratitude for what God would, the price that God would pay so that we would not just be able to sit at his table, but be co-heirs with Christ. This is what Peter says in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. He says this, For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. Right? It wasn't from something that you can just count. I mean, think how wild it would be if Nasifa goes and gets a job and she's been saving her babysitting money and saving and saving and saving. One day she just comes up. She's like, I did it. I got 45,000 bucks. Here you go, dad. I'm out. That would be a heart. That's not, that's not why she was adopted. She wasn't adopted as a placeholder until he got his money back. It was a gift from the father. Right? We were redeemed not with perishable things. Right? We were not redeemed for the empty way of life handed down for us from our ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That was the $40,000 cost for us to move from death to life. Hit Jeff up after vacation if you like, want to go through all atonement theory. Super fun. Okay, so that's it. So we're adopted for adoption to sonship through Jesus. And here's what's so fun. According to his pleasure and will. This is mind-blowing because for whatever reason, when we imagine God, we have all these different versions of God. 
And when we pray, we think, God, I don't want you to be mad at me. God, are you like a genie? Will you do these things for me? Um, if you're like my heavenly father, but if you're anything like my real father, then I don't want any of that. Like, we just get so jumbled. And because of that, right, that's why we got to go to therapy. We got to be reflective. Like, we should, we're complex, broken people. You got to work out your stuff for sure. Because if you don't work through your stuff, then you're going to miss the most incredible part of the whole gospel. When the whole credible part of the whole gospel is that this was according to his purpose. I mean, it's according to his pleasure in will. God didn't save you out of just compassion, just out of like, oh, Carol, what are we going to do with you? No way. God was like, Carol, I cannot wait. I cannot wait for you to be in my family to be my redeemed daughter, to be the fullness version that I long for you to be since the beginning of time. The joy that a healthy dad has towards their healthy kids is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. I love my daughter. I love my son. I cannot believe that I get to parent them. I, anytime I can be around them, I am with them. Like I said, I'll go to Taco Bell at 11 at night in my pajamas, because if my daughter wants to spend time with me, because she's already spoiled at this point. Like when she's five, that's a different deal. I've, I understand that. Don't judge my parenting. But what's wild is my son, he basically cut us out. His last two years at home, he's like, I don't want to talk to you. You're stupid. I'm like, I get it. So he, we didn't talk to him for two years. He goes away to college. My wife and I, we played this trick. We're like, hey, we're not going to call our son. We're going to play a little game of chicken, right? It was brutal. It's like a month and a half. We did not call each other at all. We're like, who's going to call? But now he calls, and whatever I'm doing, I'm stopping. Used to be he'd call and ask for money, right? And then I'd be like, I'm not. But now when he calls me, like, my son actually wants to talk to me. He wants to engage with me. Like, I'm going to stop whatever I'm doing because I love him and I want to be with him. And I'm a broken dad who's busy and doesn't really like talking on the phone. Imagine how much more God, our heavenly father, the creator of the universe, his love and fascination with you when he's like, gosh, I just want to spend time with you. I just want you to be with me and to do this family business together, not to do religious practices, not to work at these things, but to join with our Heavenly Father in the work that He is longing to do. And we get to do that with Him as co-heirs with Christ. Think of the joy that God must have. And for whatever reason, when I imagine God, I just imagine Him having a sour face at me all the time. It's brutal. And I'm like conscientious and dutiful and I want to keep my job as a pastor. So I do all the right things and get after it. But how different would be if our imagination of God's posture towards us was fascination and joy and affection and warmth and kindness. Makes me really upset with the world we live in and how broken it is that it's such a far reach that so few of us have actual touch points with those kinds of real and safe relationships. But that's what God wants for us. And that's what God longs for us. And what's fun about this sermon is there's no takeaway. There's not like, hey, because this sermon, you should give more or you need to go out and serve more, or you need to go do anything more. There's no application to this service. That maybe next week or when Ben preaches, he'll get after some of that stuff. What's so fun is this sermon, the only thing that I would love for you to consider is when you spend time with God this week, or if you're gonna spend time with God this week, before you even begin, reframe your brain. And not just like inoculate it, Jesus loves me, this I know, but really recognize that Jesus' heart for you is love and kindness and affection. It is his pleasure to be with you. 
And like a proud parent, he wants nothing more than for you to grow and be an incredible adult who partners with him. And if you're a baby Christian, he loves that you're still wetting the bed. And he finds all the joy in this not a fun season. And if you're five and you don't know how to catch a baseball yet, he's just not mad at those things, right? And if you are 15 and you still can't even understand algebra yet, he's not like, he's not like we are developing. And, and just like a parent age development loves and cares for their kid as they walk through all the seasons, God does that with us, full of affection, full of pleasure, full of kindness. So what I'm going to invite you to do is I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. And, and we're going to sing a song. And I would just love for you, even this next song, if you allowed these words to just wash over you, that these words would be words that would remind us of the truth of who God is. Let me pray for, for us. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, it is mind-boggling how good you are. And I'm brokenhearted for those of us who grew up in family situations where we cannot even get our mind around it. Brokenhearted for people who've been so wronged by their family system that everything I said was actually an offense and poked at something. And for that, I'm so sorry. I'm thankful that you are a God who is so kind and so patient and that you meet us exactly where we are and you walk with us at the pace that we are able to walk. And I'm thankful that you paid the incredible price to rescue us, to redeem us, to adopt us. And what a gift too, that you didn't just adopt us to have a great seat at the table, but you adopt us to sonship, to the mantle of carrying on the family business of expanding the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven for your glory. And no matter where we're at in this process, I just pray that you'd be patient with us, that we keep taking steps towards that. And my number one prayer is that when all of us engage with you this week, that we would actually understand a little bit more your affection towards us. So through the movement of the Holy Spirit, would you as a gift do that for us this week? We love you, and we're thankful that we are loved by you. And all of God's kids said, amen and amen.